we thought we were going to talk about moral compasses. What we've really <laughs> talked about is you get your moral compass through experience. Mm. And we seem to be leaning towards thinking that it's actually through challenges, discomfort, adversity, that you are more likely to be the best version of yourself with a more reliable idea of how to behave and how to treat people. I'm here this morning for a very special episode. We have David with us. Hi, David. Good morning, Tim. And we have very special guest, Peter Thompson. Yeah, good morning. Thank you for coming on today, Peter. It's very good to have you. It's I'm wondering, a pleasure. I'm wondering if you can give us a little bit of your, your background. How did you come to end up in this chair? Oh, oh boy. Um, well, I suppose it was something, uh, the long meandering path that I've taken through life. Uh, first, I went to university and studied philosophy, which was fantastic and then I had uh, I was bemoaning the fact that I'd studied philosophy and I had a friend tell me late one night that if I wanted I could go and work in Southeast Asia in Laos for Chinese state media and um, I didn't really think that that was going to happen it seemed like a bit of a pipe dream so I packed my backpack and went over there and and did the job interview and um, they gave me the job and I spent the next two and a half years um, working for Chinese state media in, in the Lao PDR in Southeast Asia and uh, came back uh, decided to build on what I'd done before and study a bit more about journalism and media and um, I think that's that's when we we kind of absolutely uh, yeah. started palling around yes was it was uh, a happenstance, I suppose, mm -hmm. um, and our relationship has developed from there. And then this is the first time you're meeting David, mm. right? So today we wanted to talk a little bit about moral compasses, and I'd imagine that this microphone sounds a little funny. Is that just me? No, I was thinking the same thing and thought, "What's going on?" But mm. is it all three of us, or is it just yours? Um, I think it's just mine. I'm going to sit at the other side. That's all right. We keep having strange technical moments. So today I think we wanted to talk a little bit about moral compasses and I suppose the three of us would be an interesting, well we all had different backgrounds just because that's the virtue of being individuals and uh, I guess we could talk a little bit about how I guess we came to some of our moral conclusions which is an interesting topic because it's you know, where do you start but I'm hoping you can lead us in with that David. Maybe some definitions first. Mm. By a moral compass, how are we going to try and define it today? Are we going to say that a moral compass is that thing you get to where when you have to make a decision, the right decision comes to you quickly and if you think about doing anything else, you suddenly feel uncomfortable and off course. Does that sound like a workable definition to everyone? Do we want to add to that? No, that sounds about right. Mm. Mm. High enough resolution, I think. Yeah, so what we're saying is a moral compass is not just that there's a circle and the, the needle spins, but that in terms of decisions the one that feels morally right, when you're attuned with it, you feel good about the decisions you're making. Mm. So how do we get to that point? Uh, I want to start with a wonderful little story from a TED Talk by Kevin Williams, who I would assume now is probably an ex-SEAL, and he used to run the BUDS program, you know, the basic training program for SEALs. And the name of his talk was everything important I learnt, I learned at kindergarten and in SEAL training. Mm. Which is, well, again, that's probably not the right words, but it's the essence of it. And it starts with a great little story. And it's, he's at kindergarten and there's a girl he likes in kindergarten. And of course, if you like a girl in kindergarten, the way you get her attention is to throw a snowball at her and hit her in the back of the head. 
<laughs> Very Freudian, right? Yeah. So he makes his snowball. He walks up behind her. He's getting the shot ready. He's paying no attention. He throws. He totally overshoots. It flies over her head and hex, hits the next little girl in front of her. And freezing cold snow goes into her ear, which, of course, massively painful. Anyway, that kid runs off screaming. He realizes I'm <laughs> going to be in a ton of trouble. Kindy teacher sits him down, just looks at him sternly, looks a bit sad, and asks him a simple question. Who do you want to be? Hmm. And, of course, as a little kid at four, he doesn't really understand the question. He <laughs> says, oh, I want to be a fireman or I want to be a soldier. Hmm. No, not what, who? And he sits quietly and she goes, at the moment you're a mean little boy who hurts people. Is that what you want to be? Who do you want to be? And he said, that's when the guilt and the shame of what he'd done set in and the recognition that everything you do, even at age four, has consequences. Mm. And there seems to me is a great story for explaining the beginning of a moral compass. From that day forward, you know, he had to think about what the consequence was going to be of an action and whether it was going to conform to who he wants to be. And he then goes on to compare that to particularly the first four weeks of seal selection. So the first three physical weeks and then the fourth week, which is hell week, where really, if you are physically fit enough, you should make it through. But normally only 30 people out of a class of 160 will make it through to the end of hell week because who you are determines if you get through hell week. Mm. And the US Navy can't change who you are. You are either committed, hardworking, can deal with pain, can deal with suffering, will look after those around you, will stand up and do the difficult thing to get your boat crew through, or you won't. And they, in nearly 50 years of training SEALs now, the number of people who get through in every class has remained exactly the same. It is always slightly above or below 20%. It's never changed. doesn't matter how they wow. change the training. doesn't matter how they work out who should go through selection. The number never changes. So is that a reflection of that it's 20% of or just above 20% of people are able to do that? Is that? Well, 20% of people who want to. Want to. Makes it even smaller. Right. Mm-hmm. But 20% of people have the right moral compass to get through hell week. Mm. So I think what we've got to say here is a moral compass is about working out who you want to be and once you know who you want to be, it's the thing that keeps you on track. Hmm. But that also what we're not saying is there's one perfect moral compass. <laughs> there is a moral compass to be a seal and Kevin Williams makes the point, by the end of Hell Week, what these people know is either die or win. Hmm. Two gears. And the other, how many weeks is the rest of it? Uh, 21 weeks because 25 weeks all up for SEAL basic training the other 21 weeks is about to go no there are a million ways to win so you still only have two gears but win stops just being about dealing with pain and suffering and pushing through and winning might even be to withdraw and wait another day if it's the best way to win later but they have to work out who understands I'd rather win and if I can't win I'll risk dying and then taper them back after. So what we're saying is, you know, moral compass gets you on track and keeps you on it, 
but that there's different kinds. And this is not to say there's moral to relativism. We're not mm. going to go out and say you can have a moral compass that says female genital mutilation is okay. Mm. No. But there are different moral compasses. So that's me talking an awful lot at the beginning. Sorry, Peter, your first time here. And you've already been told to sit quietly in the corner for the first four minutes. Well, no. Well, since I've been listening to the podcast so keenly from home, I'm, I'm just enjoying being a part of that. <laughs> well, that comes from your, let's say, virtue ethics background, right? Because yeah, you're effectively saying that so long as everyone follows these broad sets of rules that I suppose you could say, like genital mutilation is not okay because yeah. that's part of a greater rule that might be, you know, do not harm others or something along those lines, something with probably better resolution would be that the individual situations, which virtue ethics doesn't necessarily point you through with a direct answer, that's where the kind of relativism comes from. Is that kind of... Yeah, in a sense... You've got new situations, but your morality is not relative. Yeah. So, yeah, here's a good place where we could put in the best bit of Sam Harris. And the, the beginning <laughs> was the best bit, you know, the moral landscape. Any point away from a point of absolute horribleness is a more moral decision. Mm. And you can move in any di direction from that point of absolute horribleness. And it's equally moral because it's moving towards flourishing away from awfulness. Mm. So a moral compass, if we want to link this back to greek thought you know the stoics would understand what we're talking about but aristotle would also like it because we're talking about flourishing mm. martin seligman today in positive psychology would like what we're saying going well yeah you need a way to get to flourishing and on top of you know positive emotions engagement relationship meaning and accomplishment a moral compass that says nah i'm out of whack i'm not heading in the right direction no nah, that's the right one okay i'm back on track it fits my moral rules but also, if you've done a good job of developing this, your moral compass and flourishing should line up, mm. which is a hell of a lot of pressure to put on people to say from a position of zero, then through you know, absorption, mimicry, modeling, wanting to fixate and be like someone you think is amazing, all these things get you there, but in the most ad hoc, abstract, incomplete way but you still need and want to get there unless you don't. <laughs> Are the people who have no moral compass? Mm, mm. So if we put the full-blown sociopath in who has no empathy and just loves pleasure and winning and power, so what we have to say for, for every person that has an absolute moral compass and flourishing lines up with it, there's a potential for someone who goes, I don't care. I'll do as I please and it will entertain me. And if you bleed out in the process, shrug. Mm. So for every moral compass, there also has to be the antithesis. What you were kind of describing with the, with the sociopath, I think it reminds me of this concept, hedonism, which is something I associate myself to. That's probably mm. where my moral compass comes from. Not to say that I'm a sociopath, but it's something that often gets misconstrued. Hedonism sounds as if you're like the very Greek idea of hedonism, which is, you know, just would describe the wealthy people in those societies that would mm. just you know, mm. lie down on the couch and eat grapes. Yeah. Slave, <laughs> come here, yeah, that's peel right. my grape. That's right. Whereas I think if you were to read into hedonism, at least the modern interpretation of it, it is more akin to searching positive experiences, mm. which usually takes into account that to have those kinds of experiences, you need negative 
experiences to polarize to to valence the both to the both of them um, well, well let's take that a step further and go mm. from hedonism to epicureanism mm. so yep. epicurus's thing was seek pleasure but mm. the definition of pleasure was pleasure is the avoidance of pain mm-hmm. so for epicurus a day where you ate a barley cake drank small beer or watered down wine mm-hmm. worked in your garden ate fruit fruit and vegetables with your friends who also worked in the garden and then had a nice nap that mm. was an awesome day no day had to be more pleasurable than that. Mm. That was already a win. Mm. Yeah, I had the misfortune of uh, being exposed to um, uh, Epicurean philosophy at a very young age. I think it might have been an uh, Alain de Baton documentary that I saw when I was quite young. Mm. And it had the most terrible effect on me because now every time that I spend a day with friends, yesterday I spent uh, the day with my friend Dave just exercising in his garden and eating. We had lunch together and went for a run and everything. And, and it, was, it was just perfect. But, yeah, uh, perfect Epicurean day. Perfect Epicurean day. Yeah. Waste of time. Didn't get, didn't get anything done. My, yeah, but my in work some piles, ways, my work up on my desk is still piled as high as it was. Yeah, but the perfect Epicurean day, one day a week for mm. recovery mm. and to refresh yourself, remember why you do work. Awesome. The problem is being in the Epicurean garden constantly, which was the problem with the Epicureans. Mm. They didn't want to come out of the garden. <laughs> like numb nuts, you're in the garden, you're going to run out of food. What are you doing? There's a world out there that's awesome. So you just hit on the problem with it. Not so much that one day of it's bad. You're beating yourself up for one day of it. That's just cruel. Mm. But a month of Epicureanism? That's the point where you start going, hmm, what happens if I just run at the wall head first? (laughs) Well, it sounds as if that was like a, so a positive experience though mm. john lennon who is possibly a weird reference in this case i think he said something along the lines of uh, i never regret something i enjoyed doing at the time mm. there was something along those lines i mm. can't remember the exact quote which i i, I like to take that with me mm. um but back to perhaps your the epicurean versus hedonism thing it's something i think you possibly relate to david is when i describe say a positive experience um, it doesn't necessarily need to be a happy experience so something that can positively affect you can actually be precisely very um let's maybe not traumatizing but can be can involve suffering yeah like for seals hell week is positive Mm. you now know how much suffering you can take and how well you can suffer with the people you care about to achieve outcomes Mm. Yeah, so again, pain can be very, very good teacher. Mm. So in in that case, so yeah, I suppose you as a teacher, this would be a good question to ask. Is there situations where you feel that putting someone else in pain is actually a, like the right thing or the positive thing to do? This is something I'm having to think about really deeply for complex problem solving for this mm. year is that it's quite clear in lots of the really good literature about how to be successful that one of the most important lessons is learn to fail fast. Mm. Fail, learn, don't fail the same way again. If you need to fail again, fail fast, learn, don't do the same mistake again. But that in a risk-averse society like Australia with chronic helicopter parenting, <laughs> if I tell a bunch of undergrads to fail, they'll go, <gasps> and I'll lose them for a week. That's too big a thing to put in front of most people now mm. because their whole future has to be about succeeding or how they're going to get the cool job and be okay in a world where certainty is infinitely less certain so what i've been talking about is very much using david 
Goggin's idea that unless you are uncomfortable every day, you are on the path to failure. Mm. Because if you keep doubling down on what you're good at, uni, you will end up very good at that but very bad at everything else and that will make you thin and fragile. You know, thin in the intellectual sense. So making Sorry. people uncomfortable, I'm having to work out how legit is it to make people uncomfortable. And because it's me and I will always treat students with care and respect, I'm going to tell them, look, the point of this course is for you to have as many opportunities to be intellectually uncomfortable as possible. Feeling uncomfortable is fine, and the trick is how do you respond? Do you run from the discomfort, or do you learn something new and transcend it? My aim is that you start choosing to transcend discomfort by asking another question, working harder, working more effectively, working better with the person beside you, or coming and asking me a big question that then helps you make sense of something. But the discomfort is a path forward. Mm. Okay, who's a cold shower man in the room? <laughs> I am. <laughs> okay, that makes two of us, Peter. Oh, no, no, I'm uh, I'm lukewarm all the way. All right. <laughs> lukewarm. Like, I mean, it's not, it's not the... Uh, not the answer I was expecting. Usually, it's it's either scoldingly hot, hot for emotional or, or freezingly cold. It's all about finding that uh, that middle ground. Well done, you. But yeah, you know, the, the point being with the cold shower idea, and you, know, the Dutch guy, you know, Wim Hof, the Ice Man, you know, the guy that does crazy things in cold weather, has made the point. Not only is it incredibly good for your immune system, and it forces your nervous system into a parasympathetic response and recovery mode, which is very good for you know physical health, but also it's a way of dealing with discomfort every day. Mm. And go, really, did that discomfort matter? Mm. Yeah, when you turn that shower on and it hits you and for the first, what is it for you, Tim, about the first 10 breaths are kind of rapid and on the verge of squealing <laughs> like a two-year-old? <laughs> yeah, Because that's, that's say, where I'm at and I'm happy to admit it, that I'm, a, I'm nearly a two-year-old for the first 10 breaths. It's, it, yeah, I, I've, never, I've never looked at it in terms of breaths. It's, it's usually you have to take quite short breaths initially. <laughs> yeah, because you don't yeah. want to squeal like a two-year-old. No, that's yeah. right, yeah. <laughs> Uh, I would say that you kind of settle into it after about maybe 90 seconds, I would say, yeah. that I'm... Mm, Heart rates back to normal, breaths yeah. back to normal. You may not love it, but what you've realized once again is the discomfort had no impact. You just blew it off. Mm. Well, it's doubly effective because I find that it saves water. <laughs> yeah, short shower. Yeah. Well, actually not really because you've got to get to a temperature where you can functionally pick up the soap. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> no, that's that. No, the soap. So, yeah, my body wash part of the shower is 100% the bit where I'm panicking because I am just I just do it as quickly as possible, cover my entire body. You so. need to get out of the shower. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> so, yeah, this is my sort of, th this is why I use this as an example is part of getting people to deal with discomfort is doing it in little ways that, Get it wrong, doesn't matter. Get it right, only matters a little bit. You know, it's about if you can start dealing with tiny bits of discomfort mm. and to find the intellectual equivalent of cold showers. Mm. Well, that's that's something that that comes up again and again and again. The the, the first thing that comes to mind is is Nietzsche's uh, infamous "Whatever doesn't kill me makes mm. me stronger." Mm. And it's certainly it's something that I say a lot to people. My little uh, paraphrased version of it is that I've never learned anything from a good day. Yeah, I can't remember ever having learned anything from a good day except perhaps to apply sunscreen, which is very important. But, yeah. <laughs> but aside from that, it's all of the negative experiences, the walls that I've hit, the dead yeah. ends that I've encountered that have helped me. The, an analogy that I like is it's trying to navigate uh, a maze with your hands tied behind your back 
you know, without sight. Yeah. Um, which is which is you can either very slowly go about things, in which case you could maybe shuffle around and try and find the exterior of the maze shape with your foot or something, mm. or you can run head forward, head first, mm. and that's going to potentially save you a lot of time, but also potentially increase the discomfort when you when you encounter a an anomaly, let's say. Mm. Or an Whereas obstacle. I'm going to argue, you know, work out how you can move your arm sideways, get an elbow out, put an elbow on a wall, mm. use something as a guide and keep moving. Mm. So again, the, the trick with all this is you don't learn and you don't get things done unless you come up with a functional strategy. Mm. So this moral compass thing, it starts being accidental. It's just being alive mm. and mirroring and mimicking other humans, you know, the grown-ups you like and want to be like. But at some point, for enough people, it becomes a deliberate choice. How am I going to get through this effectively and in a way I value and become the person I want to be? Well, that's an interesting question. I, I suppose I'd like to throw it back at, at both of you, actually. It would be interesting. What are your personal techniques, uh, your approaches to, uh, to knowledge or advancing through life that you both use in order to maximize the gains and minimize the mistakes? I'm going to go first because my answers can be considerably less insightful. Well, no, I wouldn't say that. Well, it'd be insightful to me. So that's yeah. Uh, so my my techniques. I am someone, and perhaps this podcast is a good result of this. That actively seeks out interesting people to talk to. Um, I find that I consume my information, learn more from other people than I can. Well, let's say it's more efficient. If anything, it's cheating. It's almost a bit like. Seeking out people that are experts in certain situations, like in in certain areas, or let's not say experts, people who are well versed in areas of life, and I actively seek people out that are interesting to talk to, so I can learn from them. Let's say that is probably the easiest way to describe, mm. and the result of that would yeah be something like this, or yeah, like this podcast, for instance, meeting the both of you, and it's it's cheating in the sense that. Um, I'm relying on other people who have probably read enough books or whatever and condense them down so that they can uh, f feed that information to me perhaps a little bit more efficiently. But I'm not someone who enjoys reading as much as, say, David. So, Yeah, but I enjoy reading because it's listening. Like mm. with audiobooks, it's the fact that a human's reading it who reads well. Mm. So again, that's I was thinking as you were talking, it's a half-people thing. Mm. Books are good, and if I get something on Kindle... I'll get round to reading it eventually, well, listening to it eventually, with the synthetic voice reading it to me. But if it's a good audio book, I'll finish it much faster than a Kindle book mm -hmm. because it's a human reading it mm. and it just immediately makes it more appealing. Mm. Yeah. You done or are you still thinking and talking because I didn't want to butt in if you still oh, got no, ideas? No, no. I, I just, in terms of the morality part of it, it's interesting. I think in some respect, I feel as if it's built in. Some part of my morality is... It was not necessarily a conscious effort. Um, I think we're all kind of brought up with it. It's that nature via nurture thing that yeah. there is, let's say, guidelines that seem reasonably innate. Mm -hmm. And then a majority of it probably comes from, you know, parental forces and, you know, uh, mature forces in your life when you're growing up. Mm. It becomes a lot more difficult when you start to consider, uh, let's say, more politicized problems when you're an, ad an adult. Like what is the moral? What is the moral outcome for something, say, like you know the the abortion argument or something like that? That's where you know going to university that I found. Yeah, then you need a lot answers. more dry facts, not from people. Yeah, but you just need data that you can ponder. 
because you can yeah. you could have two people or you, you could have multiple people talk about an issue like that for ages and then still find no resolution That's yeah exactly right. and just be better informed and then make <laughs> the best decision you can based on where you're at mm. which is often all you can do mm. true so no, that's that's me done. I mean, okay. I kind of I got to a point where I think I'm still finding people that I can you know talk more issues through with. But yeah, eventually, I I think that's why I studied philosophy at university was that yeah. um, be, beyond what was kind of innate, and I could find through other people, uh, paternal forces in my life. I suppose uh, I, I went to university. That was <laughs> and that helped, and that was good. Well, yeah. Well, it helped you get more information. But also more questions. Yeah, but that's good too. That's it, yeah. Again, because the minute you believe your compass is perfect, someone's wrong. <laughs> True. Again, there's always got to be a little bit of internal skepticism. Mm. So sort of my path to constructing a moral compass is, yeah, fairly different. And I think, you know, very much a consequence of being a little blind kid. Mm-hmm. I became of, aware of some pretty big ideas, even without necessarily having the words, I'd say, probably between the ages of seven and nine. Mm. And they were, don't be dominated by fear, don't be dominated by rage, and don't be dominated by resentment. Mm. And I may not have even been able to explain what resentment meant at the time. (laughs) But I knew what the feelings were and the implications were. So to a very great extent, my deliberate personal bit of moral compass building above and beyond you know really moral parents and you know great aunts and uncles was what not to be Mm. i think i was driven more by what not to be and a strange thing i realized watching other blind kids and if any of my you know primary school little friends are listening sorry guys you're about to get slapped in the head (laughs) what i saw was lots of people around me who had not made those decisions and were behaving, showing anger, resentment, rage, frustration, fear. And as a consequence of doing those things, the grown-ups would then try and help them more. And the more the grown-ups helped them, the more fucked up they became. Mm-hmm. Because they hadn't chosen a path. So every swing of the needle got more extreme. If, you know, one day they were sad, the next day there'd be rage. And it would be equal measure in the opposite direction. So there was no stability. There was nothing that they built on day by day. So somewhere out of this came the lesson. Even if you don't know what to be, you know what not to be. So anything that's the opposite of all that stuff must be all right. Pile that stuff up. You know, again, wouldn't have known what the word accretion was. Mm-hmm. But, you know, started a process of accretion. And somewhere out of accretion came an underlying discipline. Do things that head in the opposite direction. Think, reflect, you know, listen to Radio National, mm-hmm. listen to every documentary on the ABC and SBS, absorb everything to make things that go in the opposite direction. And, and so interesting. And then out of that came a sense of self-improvement. Don't know where I'm going, but I like the direction. Mm. And then came a recognition that self-improvement at a certain point risks becoming selfishness. So start sharing the benefits of heading away from crap with other people. Hmm. So it, it, I think it ended moral. <laughs> <laughs> I think my behavior is, is largely normally you know, caring and considerate of other people. 
What's so interesting is that is that I've noticed this as a trend a lot recently. It's really difficult to describe good, yes, good things or uh, mm. or good people or or goodness. But it's it's far easier when you look at them as the opposite of negative phenomena. Yes. So, mm. uh, in your case, in your anecdote, the opposite of the distress that your that Little your peers were feeling. Yeah, yeah exactly. And um, I, I mean that was jumping jumping ahead now that's kind of my approach as well i'm i'm unilaterally deaf and so i found that um uh, when i was growing up and i said well i want to be a fighter pilot want to be a fighter pilot in the australian air force and i was told well you can't you can't you you, you can't do it and but this is the bizarre thing that early experience with um um, with um uh, i suppose what would you call it it's a, it's a collision with reality, really. Yeah. That early collision with reality, I credit with if I am um, thoughtful or or kind to people or or um, or engaged in in any way like that with ideas, I credit it all to that. Yeah. Um, my early experiences, my early limiting experiences, gave me such a head start in thinking about the world and yeah. ideas of justice and reality that it's um that I I I find it hard to to even say that I would wish it were otherwise. Yeah, because as much as you'd like to be able to do those other things, you don't want to lose the gains. Mm-hmm. You know, David Goggin's book, he makes the point that you know, every little kid, say ages four to seven, knows what feels right and what doesn't. But depending on what happens in life, whether you get to do something with that or get bent out of shape. And I'm not sure that's true, but what is true is he describes in his book exactly what we've just described. Mm. It was the shit situation that became the motivator for being better people or better people than the situation was tending towards, which is resentment would have been easy. Frustration would have been easy, but they're they're inefficient. So I I like the idea of kind of describing good as all that perhaps is not negative. Well, again, we're back to the sort of moral landscape thing Mm. of away from that point of absolute awfulness. Mm. And I would much rather describe good that way because... So many traditions start defining their good very definitely. Hmm. I'm like, how do you know? And why do you think you have the right to impose? What I'm finding troubling when we're talking about, let's say, putting, you know, we were discussing earlier about putting discomfort onto other people, which in your situation as a teacher is perhaps a good example because it's it's accessible as like you would practically need to do that, I think, to Hmm. make people learn. Uh, when can you distinguish between do people need the right attitude to approach those kinds of uh, let's say painful uh, uncomfortable situations to to learn from them do people need to have the the correct attitude when they're in those situations to learn from them and therefore do you have to distinguish between people who are prepared for discomfort as opposed to people who aren't and then does that valence whether it is okay or not to put them in discomfort. Because I've run a couple of videos in security courses that mm. have just about messed up whole lecture theatres of kids. Mm. Um, so fantastic video I use for teaching the concept of moral injury. That really PTSD is one side of what we see now at the end of wars. Moral injury is even more, you know, more obvious, more prevalent, mm. and equally damaging in a different way. And it's a wonderful video of Joshua Mance. A young lieutenant, Baghdad, 2006, walking down a street with his platoon and didn't even hear the round that went through him and his sergeant. 
So 50 caliber round went through both of them. Wow. Um, so his sergeant's just blood everywhere and going down because mm. it's hit a major artery when taking out a chunk of his chest. And, you know, at this point, you know, Joshua is so fixated on my sergeant's down. He grabs him, tries to walk with him and realizes he can't walk either. Mm. They're both falling. And the next thing he remembers is his 19-year-old medic looking down, going, the boss, the sarge, the boss, the sarge. Who can I save or can I save either? And what messed Joshua up three, four years later was not having been shot. It was the moral injury of my 19-year-old medic should never have had to make the choice of who to try and save. Now, it turns out the sergeant was, you know, he was dead no matter what. Too much of his chest was gone. You know, Joshua, I think, died three times between hitting the ground and then finally sort of stabilizing the artery it had gone through in his leg. Uh, And that running it in class, I warned the class, said, look, moral injury is not comfortable and this video is not comfortable. And, you know, the person was pressing buttons for me down the front that day, Martin, made the point when we finished watching it that a third of the class he could see had tears in their eyes because mm. Joshua's presentation is so extreme. And, you know, Joshua ends up crying doing the presentation about what happened to him. Um, is that a video that we can find online? Oh, absolutely. Okay. Um, what's so powerful about it is it's a person explaining a philosophical concept that there are whole books on. But who'll read the whole book? (laughs) Now, I had a student in that class whose dad had been to Vietnam twice. You know, he'd had kids very late in life, had one daughter. And, you know, she was really, you know, distressed at the end of the video. And I ended up talking to her for about 20 minutes after. Mm. But she went home that night and explained the video to her dad, found it on her laptop, put it up for him to watch. And for the first time ever, they found a way to talk to each other about his experiences in Vietnam and why he is who he is and could they maybe bridge the gap. And by the sound of it, they have. Mm -hmm. So once again, is it ideal that I have to show this in class? Do I like making people cry? No. Are the endpoints worth it? Yes. Am I the ultimate authority on deciding if this is a good idea? I probably shouldn't be. <laughs> but on the basis of the crap that other people often teach, but yeah, who that can? doesn't get through, who am I going to refer that decision to? It's so easy to fall into the whole moral relativism hole because you come back to this concept of, oh, who is going to be the decider for what is appropriate to show people in class mm-hmm. and then what is... Um, who is going, you know, who, who are, you know, um, who can make decisions that will affect other people? I mean, that happens all the time in yeah. politics. It's- mm. So I think sometimes you just have to go, did I weigh it up as long as I felt I needed to, mm. to feel that I don't like making the decision, but I'm sure it's the right one. You know, and I'll give the second example of the second video I, I like to show. It's some footage of a platoon. Uh, again, in Iraq during the surge of how bad it was to be in the surge. You know, as a platoon of you know, 19 to 23-year-olds. And this platoon ends up being attacked on the same street twice in a week mm. and ends up in the same grandma's house 
twice. You know, once with a dead civilian and once with their own guys injured. And she's just going off in Arabic, wailing, sounding so incredibly distressed. And it's that sense of distress. You can't understand the words, but the sense of distress <laughs> is just freaks people out. Mm. And the platoon are just on the verge of losing it. They've got the discipline. They're going to get through. That's what they do. But they're pretty damn close to the edge. What was fascinating one year when I used this in class, when would it have been second semester 2017, maybe first semester 2018, can't remember, uh, is I had a couple of Iraqi girls in the class. And I deliberately talked to them before class and said, look, I'm going to run this video. It's from Baghdad. It's an Iraqi grandma and she's having a really crap day. If you guys just want to opt out for a bit, that's cool. Um, but you know, I wanted to warn you in advance. Anyway, they came up after and said, David, yes, it's distressing, but it's also incredibly funny. I'm like, why? And she goes, well, she might be wailing, but what she's actually yelling is, God, kill these fuckers. Don't let them in my house again. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and no, no one else had any idea. No, it was yeah. only the girls who had the Arabic and you. <laughs> now, it didn't diminish what it taught no. about the experience of Baghdad 2006, 2007. Mm. It still got my point across about the surge being wonderful and a victory, bar humbug. Yeah. It was devastating for the Iraqis and for the Americans who fought it. Were things better after it than before? Yes but at an incredibly high cost. But yeah, to have you know, the two Iraqi girls be able to come up mischievously after and tell me you know, that, yes, it was distressing to watch, but also it was really funny. <laughs> That's peculiar. Was just one of those, okay, that's different. Yeah, I can work with that. And it's, and it's so strange that that idea that we kind of keep coming back to is that is what is the appropriate level of discomfort yes. especially when you're not the uh, let's say the, uh, the the recipient of the discomfort yes. personally what level is, of discomfort is moral and it, and it becomes an interesting question because you know as a teacher you would have to teach classes of 100 200 people yeah. what what is the appropriate level of discomfort let's say if one yeah. person in 100 feels acutely discomfortable mm. with yeah. the ideas you present yeah. at, at what level is it's like a um, uh, I can't remember the ancient Greek uh, problem, but you know, put a put a, a grain of sand bit by bit. How much? How long until you've got a pile? Yeah. And by that same token, how many how many students would feel uncomfortable in a classroom before uh, before it was it was inappropriate? And it's such a big question today mm. because people seem to. Uh, well, unis now have trigger warnings. Well, exactly. Looping back to what we were talking about before in terms of the helicopter parenting yeah. um, um, what it, uh, people seem to feel entitled to a reasonable level of mental and intellectual comfort even mm. at institutions like university which mm. I find a little bit bizarre and yet how are they going to cope with an uncertain world mm. without practicing discomfort mm. so we've got such a disconnect between the delusion of the present is lovely no it's not mm. bits of it are Discomfort's normal. It's the most consistent thing in human history. Hunger was normal until 200 years ago for the majority of humans. It's still normal for nearly 800 million people. You know, our delusion of progress. Yeah, it, it, it's such a bad... You know, to go to the thing of how many people are uncomfortable in class, mm. the same semester I first showed those two videos, the first week I deemed to be relatively uncontroversial. I literally just explained the Soviet-Afghanistan war. 
And yet I had a student who came up after the first shoot and went, you know, David, please don't take this the wrong way, but I'm unenrolling. Whoa. I'm there. Really? And she goes, yeah, this is just too much for me. Oh. I'm there. But this is only the beginning. And she goes, yep. <laughs> I'm there. Okay. I wish you wouldn't because I think security everyone needs to understand mm. and I think how and why it really works needs to be understood. But I'm also not going to pressure you because you know where your comfort zone is and whether you are or aren't willing to push it. Mm. It's so peculiar, isn't it? Especially comfort zones and especially pushing your discomfort. Mm. I mean, we talked earlier about PTSD and, and that, that struck a chord with me because I also developed some PTSD after my after my time abroad as a reporter, there was a, Laos had a incredibly terrible spate of aviation tragedies, and uh, and I worked that pretty extensively with my with my Chinese colleagues, and um, and it took me actually a while when I was back in Australia before I figured it out it was um, it was PTSD. Yeah. Um, but what's been extraordinary about it is that you know when I when my PTSD is triggered to use a technical term. The adrenaline pumps up. Yeah, it's it's as though I was standing. It it could be anything. It could be the pizza delivery guy is here. Yeah. but I'm back there. I'm standing in a field. There are people's personal effects. There are letters. There are teddy bears. There yeah. are in-flight snacks littered across, as though there was a whirlwind that came and and threw a plane's contents over a field. And I'm right back there. But the only thing that's helped me is to actually chase those reactions yeah. to put myself in situations where I am being shocked, I am being confronted. And each time I don't get less scared, but I don't, the, the physiological shock isn't less profound, but I, each time I develop new tools to be able to handle it better. You manage it more quickly and manage more effectively. Manage it more quickly and more yeah. effectively. Exactly. And that's, and that's been, that's, I believe is called exposure therapy. Yes. And that's been the only thing. So that's the, the weird catch 22 when we're talking about this um, this discomfort problem, is that the only way to minimise discomfort, especially in an uncertain world, is to kind of inoculate yourself against yeah. it. And this this must be so biologically deep in us, where most of human history was miserable and short. <laughs> discomfort was normal. Comfort is abnormal. You know, and that doesn't mean we want to be Spartans and sleep in the snow. It just means... This level of niceness is lovely, but also detrimental to our ability to function well. And if you're not going to do little discomfort, how are you going to build your moral compass? Is it going to be too fragile? Are you going to go, no, violence is wrong? <laughs> well, most of the time, yeah. But if it's me or the sociopath? <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I probably grew up in that, that situation, you know, probably wasn't that long ago, maybe a few years back, that I made a comment to my mother, noticing that pretty well most of my family has had, you know, I, let's say, emotional challenges, let's say. Mm. Whereas I've grown up in a, a reasonably stable household. My parents are both together. You know, I haven't really faced much adversity, you know, have, let's say, a, a cultural privilege or let's say I don't, I don't face any cultural adversity being white and male. It's like I kind of went to my mom i'm like you know i feel as if i've been somewhat deprived of any kind of challenge like I, which is a weird thing to say yeah but it's not really, to say that you know i i don't feel oh, not that i feel sympathetic not that i don't feel sympathetic for people who do face challenges like that it's just that 
that in in not facing any any of those kinds of challenges from external forces it's it's taken a considerable amount of effort to challenge my, myself and discipline to challenge myself yeah, if you don't get the opportunities to practice challenging situations mm. you have to do it consciously without the early experience mm. so you know imagine the little thing you know it's however many thousand years ago you want to imagine you're the seven-year-old and someone has to keep the chickens basically where they're safe don't let them go in the woods where the fox will eat them mm. And your job all day is to make sure the chickens don't go in there. Now you're responsible for something. You know, you get it wrong, the chicken gets chopped. You know, you maybe find the carcass and the blood and feathers everywhere. Mm. Even that, uncomfortable, but a great lesson. Mm. Life is fragile. Responsibility is important. So it seems to me we almost need to define in our society a class of activities that will help you experience challenges and being uncomfortable that most people can get through with a bit of effort mm. so that we can say to parents, teachers, everyone, calm the hell down. Mm. This is the approved list of moderate risk but nothing worse than maybe a broken bone or a sprained something. Mm. No one's going to die or lose an eye but it will give people a chance to practice mm. being effective, dealing with discomfort and in doing so, start to decide who they want to be from a position of competence, not from a position of fear. So, you know, to get back to our original thing, where do you want your moral compass to come from? From competence out of hard-won experience or out of the ether because you've <laughs> pondered on it but you're terrified of life? Mm. I know which one I'd much rather prefer, but the problem is I prefer it because I came from it. Right. The practical experience one. I, you know, moral arguments in books, you know, that can be entertaining. But again, I'm going to, like Tim, I'm going to trust a person's experience of learning that same lesson through experience over someone abstracting the logic of the decision. So it's why to me utilitarianism, as much as on paper it seems a good logical system, I'm like, bah humbug, you did it in a book, mate. It doesn't represent a society. It doesn't represent a power structure. It doesn't represent class relations. It doesn't represent gender relations. It's an ethereal idea for marshmallow humans who don't have any history. <laughs> marshmallow humans. It, it's so interesting because we're talking about what would be the perfect little inoculation for hardship. And mm. I just finished recently. It's Heights, The Coddling of the American Oh, Mind. yeah, it's a brilliant read. Oh, right. Well, yes. we can definitely recommend that for the, yes. for the listeners Yes, another there. thing that's definitely worth reading. And again, Jonathan's copped so much shit for writing it, mm. saying, hello, we have turned a whole generation of college kids into useless, terrified people who need a trigger warning for things they should have got over when they were eight in the playground. So to, to explain to everyone quickly what we're, what we're talking about is that, um, uh, so Jonathan Haidt proposes that the old uh, hierarchy of children, the old social organization of children who would rule from the end of the school bell until dinner was called, and the interactions that children used to have to go through with each other, dealing with bullies and people and posses and clubs and everything after school in that evening playtime, was actually irreplaceable. Yeah. And in the crime, uh, let's say the, um, the the huge concern and publication of news about crime in the 80s, that behavior was stamped out yeah. and, is, and is having a now with helicopter kids who are picked up from the gate, dropped right home in front of the iPad, and now developing these <laughs> these problems with with being able to, uh, uh, let's say, confront discomfort, yeah. to be able to regulate their own social... Um, social norms and social relationships. That's exactly right. Well, that wonderful example in the book, 
you know, a kid in the 70s was likely allowed out to go hang with their little friends from the age 7 to 8. By the late 90s, that's moved to 13 to 14. Whoa. It's nearly doubled. Now, how much lost time has there been? Now, I remember being allowed as the little blind kid to go and sell raffle tickets on my own with my book of raffle tickets and my little coin purse to keep people's money for their tickets in <laughs> at nine. Wow. My parents are freaking awesome. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, parents. <laughs> well, it sounds like you know, this was the purpose of perhaps the rights, rites of passage for... Absolutely. For, you know, like from cultures to, to now is that, you know, perhaps challenges or things that you need to face and, and do to then like kind of assume maturity usually yeah. in cultures, right? And then that seems, I think I could think of a few examples of that. I mean, if you look at the distress or eustress or whatever it is that that is caused in something like year 12 mm. in our society. Because you're um, not ready for it and then suddenly you're dropped in it. <laughs> Is that seems a bit like of a like a rite of passage, but I think given how yeah the the lead up to it, perhaps even the schooling system is has been skewed by the helicopter parenting. Mm, suddenly, and, you can't escape yeah. the stress, whereas you should have been building up to the stress. Yeah, it's it seems like there are lessons that have been taken out of that right rite of passage as well you know Mm. i don't think that the let's say the educational outcomes of year 12 are necessarily what they should have been however the stress caused by it is still a lesson so yeah and the stress should be bad Mm. so that you do better later Mm. but it shouldn't be so bad it's debilitating yeah and you should be building up to being prepared for it so really you know the irony is we thought we were going to talk about moral compasses what (laughs) we've really talked about is you get your moral compass through experience Mm. and we seem to be leaning towards thinking that it's actually through challenges, discomfort, adversity, that you are more likely to be the best version of yourself with a more reliable idea of how to behave and how to treat people. Mm. Pretty good endpoint, but what a weird way we you know, we oh, sort of went around the circuit to yeah. get there. It's peculiar, but that does seem like things have, uh, have kind of come full circle quite nicely. Well, maybe we should leave it there. And um, it's been an absolute pleasure to uh, have you on the show, Peter. It's been an absolute pleasure to, uh, to come here. And thank you ver- both very much for having me. Mm, you're welcome. And do you want to come back again soon? Yes, please. Absolutely. Could be a three-man crew more regularly here. <laughs> listeners. All right. Cheers, guys. Thank you. listeners you didn't think you were going to hear me after the end of the music did you i'm here today to say we now have merchandise you can have a blind insights t-shirt you can have a blind insights pin you can have a blind insights hoodie you can have a blind insights coffee cup all you need to do is go to oscast a-u-s-c-a-s-t dash network dot myshopify.com and click on blind insights and you can see all our products Thank you very much to the OzCast Network for their support and making this happen.